0: Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, DC based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of DC Insider. We're really glad to be back. We've had a little time off, but we've got a great series of uh, topics to cover today. And joining me, I've got Nita Beecher again. Hey, Nita.
2: Hey, David. How are you doing? It's been a little bit.
1: It has been. It has been. I've been on the road a bit, so I'm glad to be back and catching up on the podcast. And joining us today is our partner, John Clifford. John? Hi, David. Hi, Anita. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. We're delighted to have you. So over the last couple of weeks, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that's gone on, but one of the things that has really caught our eye, and it's caught our eye because we've been working with a lot of clients on these issues, is the outcome and the efficacy and the implementation of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. And really, the question we've been asking ourselves and thought that would be worth discussing is, you know, DEI really feels like it's under assault. And there's some open questions now as to whether the DEI programs that we currently know that are still widely implemented, are they going to survive? And so that's really what we would like to unpack today is really discuss that. And I just, I'm going to seed myself. I normally don't start with myself, but I'm going to give myself a minute or two just up front, just because I think to understand where we're going, we need to at least briefly know where we've been. And that I think will help kind of frame it up a little bit. So what today we talk about DEI really started gosh, back, I mean, when, if we go back to formal affirmative action, of course, that's Executive Order 11246. That's nearly 60 years ago when President Johnson executes the executive order and implements the obligations for federal contractors. Of course, at that same time, Title 7's enacted, and it also recognizes that there can be voluntary affirmative action, but that was really intended to be remedial in nature. So as that progresses you know, we're going to jump forward now from the mid-60s to really the 80s and 90s of still the last century, where there was a lot of excitement about what was then called Workforce 2000, what the new century would look like, who would be in the workforce. And that's similar at the same time, the Labor Department, actually, back when I was there, we focused on the glass ceiling initiative. And the thought was, that the U.S. economy had opportunities to grow and expand and it would create expanded opportunities for good jobs for persons across society, including those that had historically perhaps been deprived of opportunities. So the question was expanded job opportunities, expanded internal promotional opportunities. That's really the glass ceiling and how that's pursued. That idea kind of pushes forward. And then in the 2000s, as we round the mark, Really, there's much more discussion about social responsibility, diversity becomes talked about openly as a goal. And then we start getting into the 2010s, if you will, where it really starts to get reduced to specific action items. And I'm thinking like in 2014, 2015, Arjuna Capital begins kind of what we might call activist shareholders. That was focusing on the gender pay gap and the EEO reports, and whether the, as shareholders, uh, Arjuna, could bring claims against companies if there were potential gaps that evidenced a lack of diversity. That then, there are accelerants that begin to kind of propel this on a broader basis. 2017, we have the, what, hashtag Me Too, the Me Too, uh, which quickly gets, again, embedded in these, not only the broader awareness, but the broader legal assertions of claims by activists seeking to advance Me Too issues. In 2020, there was the murder of George Floyd and the amplification of the Black Lives Matter movement, which really caused a very widespread focus on diversity, which then quickly got folded in, as you can feel, this is kind of an accelerating trend line into ESG, environmental, social, and governance, and really social, that is the S part. The S is really what relates to the workplace and relates to broad diversity and inclusion goals that many, many companies have have gone forward
3: with. And David, I do think it's important to note that this push for expanded diversity and inclusion initiatives, it's not just coming from shareholders and, and from the outside, but it, these days it's coming directly from the White House. President Biden has made de An emphasis since taking office. On his very first day in office, he signed an executive order to push racial equity and underserved communities in the federal government. And actually, just last month, he signed another order attempting to further these goals and pushing agencies to develop their own equity action plans. And I think, you know, we've seen a number of agencies have actually started to require that contractors submit DEI plans, diversity plans, along with their proposals when they're seeking contracts. That's right,
1: John. And that's in addition to their federal contractor affirmative action. Correct. Right. So it really has become amped up. So Nita, you follow this regularly. What are the threats? I mean, this all sounds like the wave is just moving and progressing. Why is there any concern at all? And who's raising it? Well,
2: you know, David, I really feel like employers are kind of being bounced around right now as often happens, there's big pushback against the whole DEI and ESG, including litigation, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit, against Starbucks, based on the way that they are setting up their goals for DEI. Also, you've got, on the other hand, you've got on the one hand, you've got on the other hand, you've got the SEC saying, we want to know a lot more about your human capital. We've got proposed regulations coming out and even settlements by companies with the SEC over a failure to do compliance and to stay on top of it. And finally, I think we really have to look at what's gonna happen probably in June, early July, when the Supreme Court rules on the use of affirmative action in admissions into schools, into colleges, in the Harvard and UNC cases, and see what kind of an impact that's gonna have on employers. Meanwhile, companies hired a whole lot of DEI people. We understand in the last six months, 300 have been laid off as part of the layoffs going on in tech, at much higher numbers. So that people are really—it's really a whole mess of stuff going on right now, David.
1: Okay, so it sounds like sort of pretty—you know notwithstanding this momentum, some confusion. Well, let's bear down on these shareholder claims because historically, the shareholder claims have been advocates of people promoting the use of diversity and criticizing companies if they weren't aggressive enough in doing that. John, what what's going on on that front?
3: Yeah, David, that's right. I think uh, you pointed out 2014, 2015, we were seeing these activist shareholders really pushing for DEI, and And now it seems over the past one to two years, I think we're seeing the pendulum start to swing back the other way. And we're seeing these conservative shareholder groups uh, pushing back against DE&I and ESG initiatives that corporations are putting in place. Probably the most prominent right now of these groups is the National Center for Public Policy Research, which is a mouthful, so I'll call them NCPPR to, to shorten that up. But it's a conservative nonprofit, and they are self-proclaimed uh, that they are responsible for a large majority of the anti-diversity, anti-ESG shareholder actions that we are seeing. These efforts, they run the gamut. It can be open questions at shareholder meetings to shareholder proposals. Oftentimes, they're requesting audits or proposals for audits that analyze the validity of DEI policies and their impact on companies' businesses. We've also started to see that this group will partner with conservative law firms, oftentimes the American Civil Rights Project that has issued a number of demand letters to corporations demanding that they uh, retract DEI initiatives that they deem to be overreaching. We've seen at least seven of these go out just over the last year to sort of a who's who of corporations in the country asking or demanding, I should say, that these policies be taken back.
1: Well, and some of those, I think, John, not only focus on the workforce, but they also focus on the supply chain. This diversity of supply chain. And so companies that are attempting to set aside concepts or contracts that are limited to certain protected groups to enhance their opportunities are facing very significant challenges as a direct result of this.
2: In fact, these letters have been fairly significant. They've actually had employers back down from policies that were fairly aggressive and, you know, move on because of these threats.
3: That's right, uh, Nita. And you know, to another point, something that you mentioned at the top here is actual litigation going forward from these. They've taken the next step beyond these demand letters, and NCPPR, along with their partners, the American Civil Rights Project, filed suit against Starbucks uh, seeking to have these DEI plans retracted. Uh, Starbucks, like other companies that we've mentioned, received a demand letter. For their policies to be retracted, the group's NCPPR in this case was saying that they incentivize discrimination against whites in employment decisions, hiring, firing, promotions, really across the board. And David, to your point also, that it incentivizes discrimination in their contracting decisions with suppliers and, and vendors. There were a number of policies here uh, that many companies do adopt that you had specific representation goals put in place by Starbucks, a commitment to board diversity, again, a supplier and diversity and inclusion program. But the policy that really seemed to draw the most attention was Starbucks putting in place compensation system that would reward executives who hit their DEI measurements or goals. So, After receiving a demand letter, Starbucks responded, uh, and we've actually seen that response, and they refused to retract any of their policies. They stood by them, and in response, they got a lawsuit. And the lawsuit claimed under federal and state non-discrimination laws that seeking injunctive relief because these policies were putting the company at risk of discrimination lawsuits. Also, I think of note here is that the lawsuit also names not just the company itself, but all of Starbucks' officers and directors individually, alleging that they have breached their fiduciary duties by implementing these diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. So this lawsuit is still in the very early stages. We haven't received a response or or the court hasn't received a response from Starbucks at this point, but in my discussions with David and Nita, I, I know we've all found it interesting that there has not been any motion to dismiss this case. I think it's being taken very seriously. I think they have some substantive claims. And uh, we're certainly, I know a lot of people are very interested to see how this plays out.
2: I think the most interesting thing, John, is that many, many companies tie executive compensation to certain DE&I goals. And I think the fact that this claim is basically saying Starbucks is using This executive compensation basically to create quotas is an interesting approach.
1: Well, and Nita, on top of that, I mean, how many times have we all heard from clients, we've got to move the needle and we need to reward, which is code talk for pay people for doing what we want done. And so what has happened here, at least the allegations are, and there are other cases that this isn't the first time this legal theory has been trotted out. And there are other courts that have recognized this. That if you have a general goal, and these tend to be fairly specific, tied to certain managers, and then you directly tie a component of pay, you have a reasonably good argument that that potentially becomes an illegal quota. And that is the thrust of what's here. So it's a good lesson for anyone with a DEI plan to be careful not to fall into that.
2: Well, moving on, David, I think we've talked about what's going on with Starbucks. So that's one group of activist shareholders. Meanwhile, the king of all shareholders is our friends at the SEC. And they're now pushing the needle under the Biden administration to look at expanding human capital reporting. Up to this time, basically all these particular corporations have had to do is report how many employees they have. They have not at this point outlined exactly what's going to be involved in this reporting. But basically in 2020, they said that companies need to describe capital resources, human capital resources, to the extent material to understanding the business as a whole, including measures that address development, attraction, and retention of personnel. And, you know, with that in mind, it's interesting that less than a month ago, The SEC and Activision, the gaming company, which settled with EEOC for sexual harassment complaints for $18 million, Activision settled with the SEC for $35 million. And the reason was the SEC said that Activision did not have in place structures that ensured that employee complaints were understood and supported up to the board of directors. This is a new approach that we have not seen from the SEC, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. In fact, some of the Democratic commissioners on the SEC actually want diversity numbers to be reported. Meanwhile, the other thing about the Activision that I think is important is that there was a claim that whistleblowers were not being allowed to report to any of the federal agencies. Any former employees were required by their severance agreement to tell the company when they were contacted. And that was the second item. And finally, on the SEC point, looking at shareholders as we talked about, McDonald's has been sued by shareholders for failure to provide oversight again Same idea, oversight of sexual harassment in this case by the CEO and CHRO. And while the CEO and the board of directors appear to be off the hook over this sexual harassment situation, the CHRO is not off the hook, but it was his obligation to know what was going on around sexual harassment and make sure the board of directors knew it.
1: So this, to me, really underscores that the SEC, which is the enforcer and protector of shareholder interests, is now going to have expect much greater accountability from corporations, either into the efficacy of the policies, and that's where Activision fell short, or Potentially accountability for corporate officers that don't fully and effectively carry out the policies as designed and either through the SEC or through potential litigation again brought by shareholders. And finally, that stepped up reporting, particularly, I mean, we have big fights today about whether companies are going to publish their EEO one data. Now it feels to me reading between the tea leaves, this administration really wants pretty detailed reporting to the SEC about the diversity of their leadership teams and workforce. There is some of that at the most senior executive level. This would presumably be a much deeper dive. So it's kind of strange to me. I mean, we have activist shareholders criticizing these programs. And to John's point, we simultaneously, we have this administration kind of doubling and tripling down executive orders, expanded SEC role. That's an interesting
3: dynamic needed to your point about companies caught in the middle. And It's worth pointing out that it's not just corporate litigation that we're keeping an eye on right now. Uh, There are some cases uh, in the higher education space that could have significant impacts on all of these issues, uh, DEI, in the corporate world. Uh, Many people are maybe aware of the pending challenges against Harvard and the University of North Carolina regarding their race-conscious admission programs. Uh, The Supreme Court heard arguments on these cases last fall. Both Harvard and uh, North Carolina have argued that their programs stay within the guardrails, which have been developed in in prior Supreme Court cases for effective and valid diversity initiatives. But the Students for Fair Admissions, who are challenging these programs uh, in these cases, argue that they've overreached and that they impermissibly consider race. So we do expect, based on how the arguments went, we are expecting that the court will find in favor of students for fair admissions, the plaintiffs in this matter, and that they will likely knock down these programs. While these are about race in admissions cases, there is a long history of these higher education affirmative action decisions trickling out into the employment world. And if the court rules, uh, as we expect, that these programs are in fact illegal, we do believe that there would be a significant impact on the employment space. Particularly with these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that we've been discussing. And it would provide a lot of ammunition to those people who are already leveling attacks on these types of programs.
2: And we have yet another opportunity for attacks on DEI programs. The Supreme Court has accepted and is expected to rule by the end of this term on an expansion of accommodation based on religion. The way that the current situation is set up is that all employers have to do is to provide a limited level of accommodation that is not going to basically burn them and de minimis amount. The expansion is expected by the Supreme Court to be at the level of the ADA accommodation. And as many cases, there's a lot of a religious pushback on LGBT and other items of respect and training, I think DE&I professionals and CEOs and corporations need to keep a very close eye on this case and how it might impact their programs.
1: I think that's right. I mean, so it really feels like we're posed for sort of a seismic shift, potentially much greater awareness. It will be viewed, the higher ed cases as kind of putting the thumb on the scale to allow particularly those whites and Christian claims to be amplified, I think, and they have been some of the lead challengers of DEI programs historically. That's the pattern we've seen. So I think the broad sense is here that that's likely, you know, in 90 days or so, we're going to see another seismic shift. And then I think the litigation and all the cycle that we've laid out here is likely to spin up and increase significantly, significantly. All right. We're getting close on time. Let me just turn because let's get a couple of takeaways. We've covered a lot of uh, a lot of real
3: estate here. Uh, John, let me start with you. Takeaway for the audience. What does all this mean for an employer? For the employers, the legal landscape for these programs is shifting. Not only that, but there are new challenges and pushback coming. It seems every day we're getting something new on that front. So, it is time for these programs to review what they have in place or if you're putting them in place and do it with an eye towards the legal validity of these programs to make sure that you're not next on the the target list. Good advice.
2: I also think that corporations, not only do they need to review their policies and how they might be impacted, but they need to prepare communications. They need to get in front of this so they can speak to their employees, to applicants, and to customers as to what their DEI program is and what it isn't.
1: I think that's exactly right. And final thing I'll note, we have focused on these federal developments under federal law. Let's not forget the state's. They are extremely active players. And for the multi-state employers out there, obviously understanding what the legal guardrails are and requirements, and this tends to be more from the, I'll call them the blue states, that actually have imposed some additional reporting, disclosures, obligations are increasingly coming online. I predict those states will become even more active in response to these likely federal developments. So we're going to continue to see this divergence Again, Anita, you said right at the top, our clients are caught in the middle and employers are caught in the middle. So, all right, exciting time with lots of uh, change coming. Great, great session. Anita, thank you as always. And John, thank you. Thank you both. And everyone, if you're not a subscriber, please, please just punch the button and subscribe DC Insider, what employers need to know. We do this regularly and we do try to address the most challenging issues facing employers today. Thank you.
0: Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.